Hello, and welcome to the Consistent Profits Podcast, brought to you by Inside Out Trading and Brian McAvoy, where the focus is on consistency, because when you have the consistent part down, profits become easy. Hello, everybody. This is Brian McAvoy with a new episode of the Consistent Profits Podcast. I'm really excited today to be interviewing Daryl Guppy. Of, he's the creator of the Guppy Traders. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Daryl. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, for those of you not already familiar with Daryl, he's known as the Chart Man, and he's a prominent Australian financial columnist and author renowned for his expertise in stock market trading techniques. Uh, with a career spanning several decades, Daryl has become a recognized figure in the finance industry, having delivered speeches at conferences worldwide and making appearances on various finance television programs. He's credited with inventing the Guppy Multiple Moving Averages, the GMMA, a widely used tool incorporated in charting programs like Metastock which is very cool. I didn't know that prior to uh, this week. Um, in addition to his contributions in fintech, Daryl's a prolific writer, having authored eight books, including one specifically focused on the Chinese stock market. He's also a regular columnist for publications such as The Edge, China Daily, and Shanghai Security News. And he also maintains a CNBC.com column titled Charting Asia. Again, Daryl, uh, thrilled to have you here, man. My pleasure. Um, so, you know, let, one thing I was, I love getting started with things on, you know, how, how did you wind up in trading? I mean, because trading is, we're, we're a bunch of out, you know, outliers. And so, and especially somebody like yourself, where you're kind of unique within the trading space, how did you get started in, in, in trading in the first place? <laughs> I blame Warren Buffett. Oh, He's yeah. the core of all of my problems. <laughs> okay. How, how's that? So, and this is hard to imagine unless you visited Australia. Okay. So at the time, I was living in a very small and very remote community. Small. Let's define small. Less than 200 people. Oh, wow. Let's define remote. Remote means that the nearest town, which has 2,000 people in it, is... I'm going to convert this now. I won't convert. It is 600 kilometres away. Oh, wow. And there's nothing in between. Yeah, now this, as you realize, is a great place to start being involved in the market. <laughs> yeah, okay. No TV, no radio, no newspapers, almost a complete communications blackout. Okay. Although, to be fair, we did get a newspaper once a week coming in by the mail plane, and we did have access to a satellite telephone that cost $40 per minute, so we didn't use it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I'm working there and I'm thinking, we need to do something to generate some income. So I go into, into the, the nearest major city, which is 3,000 kilometres away, and I'm reading about this Warren Buffett fella. And he says, invest in things you know. So what do I know? Well, I've pushed around, I've put mining roads in, I've worked underground chasing gold, I've put mining camps in. I know a little bit about mining. And I decide this is where I'm going to focus. Buy what you know, buy quality companies. So I bought a company called Mount Isa Mines. And of course, I didn't have very much to put into place. I started with all of my savings, probably not a wise thing to do, but all of my savings, a total of $2,000, and bought Mount Isa Mines. Returned to this isolated community. And of course, there's this interesting tracking 
how's the housing investment going? I know we're in for the long term, but it's nice to see if it's doing something. Mm-hmm. So we get the newspaper once a week. And I've got a brand new Apple IIe computer with this program called Excel. Ooh. Well, it's got automatic lines and columns. So I can put a little dot here at this week's opening price and another dot next week, another dot the week after. I'm creating what I now know to be a weekly chart. Yeah. But it's lagged by one week. <laughs> yeah. By the time I get the newspaper, it's a week old. Okay, so I bought it at a price and it's gone up 100%. And I'm feeling pretty smart to say the least. Oh, yeah. Then the next week is down a bit. Down a bit further and down a bit further. And it's back before too long, a couple of months, back to where I purchased it. And I felt pretty stupid. So the next time it went up, a reasonable percentage, 70%, I sold it. But of course, remember, this is lagged by a week. So in fact, prices continue to rise. I got an extra 10% on top of my sale price. There you go. This is good news. But putting all that to one side, what's it teach me? teaches me a number of things because i'm so isolated no news no way to access any information about the company what's happening and so on i have to rely on other people telling me what is happening Mm -hmm. i have to assume that everyone else in the market knows more than i do but that knowledge will be revealed through their price activity if they're confident price goes up If they're not confident, price goes down. It's a pretty simple calculation. So by keeping a chart, a very primitive chart, of what was happening, you were able to identify how other people were thinking. You were identifying the psychology of the market and the market participants, not the individual stock. Forget Warren Buffett. He might have got me there, but he wasn't going to get me out of there at a profit. So that's how I started trading. And of course, things developed from there. Having made some money on the market, you go and buy other stocks, you look at what's happening. And the important thing is that you see repeated behaviours in the market. Oh, yeah. So because I'm not distracted by outside information, Mm -hmm. by newspapers, by news, all I have to focus on is this literally hand-drawn Excel, Apple IIe chart. And you see patterns of behavior, patterns of price behavior. And you see it repeated and you see the same outcome as a result. So that opens up a whole lot of what I call chart analysis. Mm -hmm. And there are two distinct methods in the market of understanding it from a trader's perspective. There is chart analysis which use the basic price information on the chart without the addition of any indicator. Okay. So if you want to identify an upward sloping triangle or a downward sloping triangle or something similar, it doesn't require an indicator. Mm. All it requires is a pencil and a ruler, as it were. Then you have technical analysis, which aims to manipulate the underlying price data to extract a moving average, for instance, in its most simplest. And all of our technical indicators rely on that manipulation of the underlying price data. And that reveals something else about market behavior. So at heart, I'm a chartist, a chart man, as distinct from a technical analyst, even though I've done lots of work there. That's a long answer to a simple question. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Very cool how you got started, though. Yeah, especially out in the middle of nowhere with, with no information to work with. 
but you turned it to your advantage, which is cool. Um, so yeah. Uh, now, as far as uh, okay, so you got started trading, found some success. How did you wind up going from your remote location to actually getting out and, and involved in the world and uh, working with other traders? Well, remember, this is going, if you remember the date of an Apple IIe, oh, you yeah. realize that this is, the let's call it the pre-gestation period of the internet. And there's this wonderful thing called CompuServe, which, of course, was an old-fashioned bulletin board. And when I moved into proper civilization, that's 600 kilometers away, the town of 2,000 people, we had access to dial-up internet and so on, and this bulletin board thing called CompuServe. And I talked to a few people around trading and so on, because in the Australian environment, at that time, the only financial information available was on investing. Traders didn't exist as far as publications, the media and books were concerned. We only had access to books coming out of the United States. So to a large extent, I had to reinvent the wheel. I didn't realise at the time, but a lot of what I thought was, oh, this is brand new stuff. In fact, of course, it's been covered by, by other people. Mm -hmm. So once I moved into that environment, I continue to trade because there is an Australian dream. And the Australian dream is to make a full-time income from part-time work. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I treat trading. In time, yeah, it became a full-time work, but never full-time in the sense of having to work full-time. Even today, I might spend well, seeing I'm trading at the moment, I spend maybe 10 or 15 minutes looking at the screens. That's it. My decisions are made for the day. That's all that's required. The big problem is what you do with the rest of the day. But that's that's another set of questions altogether. <laughs> so from there, I ended up talking to um, Alexander Elder. Okay. And cutting long story short, uh, he came to Australia and stayed with me for a, a bit of time. And he seemed to be of the opinion that what I was doing wasn't quite what everyone else was doing. Okay. I'm already a writer. I've written quite a bit of stuff prior to, to that. But I sat down and wrote a book, just share trading, uh, which was the right book at the right time in Australia. So that established a reputation within the Australian environment, talked about trading for the first time. It talked about being able to understand market activity based on chart analysis. It talked about the ability of retail traders who were just beginning to emerge to be able to take on the market and to develop good returns out of that activity. Yeah, very cool. Well, so what, what prompted, you to, prompted you to write your first book? I mean, oh, I've a lot of people- been writing since I was a small child. So, you know, I mean, it's just an extension. Prior to that, I would write in, um, in four-wheel drive magazines, in um, things like National Geographic, uh, the Australian version, not the international version. Uh, a variety of stuff. So I've been writing for years and years and years. Putting a book together was just an extension of what I'd already been doing oh. in that sense. But of course, the challenge is, right. and hopefully I succeeded, the challenge is to make the book interesting. Because let's face it, <laughs> apart from you and me, technical analysis is pretty boring one way and another. Really? I mean, if you want to go to sleep, read some of the standard texts on technical analysis. <laughs> so you have to take it into the broader public. And <laughs> To some extent, the success of the book would indicate that we were successful in doing that. This isn't a field for specialised people. This is something that you and I can do. Now, although we accept that today, we accept the democratisation of the markets. You go back 30, 40 years, and I'm sorry, that's why I've got no hair, I'm quite old. Going back to that period, 
The market was an exclusive domain of the rich and the wealthy. It wasn't for ordinary people. And it wasn't until we had computerization, Apple IIe's, the early PCs, that for a brief point in time, a couple of years, the playing field leveled out. We had access, albeit expensive, to the same sort of charting software that was used by the professionals. Mm -hmm. Now, CompuTrack was an example of that. CompuTrack, CompuTrack, I mean, my the, the, the weakest, the poorest um, internet app does more than CompuTrack ever did. But at the time, CompuTrack was at the top of the list. <laughs> Cost me $2,500 to buy. Wow. At that stage, I was living in town, you see. Wow. And... Uh, I'd ordered CompuTrack from the United States and it arrived with a box of about, I don't know, 12 or 14 or 15 floppy disks, little square ones. Unfortunately, I wasn't home when the package was delivered. And a good <laughs> friend of mine was the delivery man, so he knew it. So he just dropped it off at the door. Unfortunately, my dog, which is, and it would be popular these days, I owned a Blue Healer at the time, and Blue Healers are renowned for their protective skills. My blue healer decided that this box was not a good thing. So it chewed it to pieces. Two and a half thousand dollars worth of software disappeared. Ouch. <sighs> so what I did is I wrote a letter explaining, not the dog ate my homework, but the dog ate my discs. And I dipped her paw in ink and made her sign the letter and sent it off. And CompuTrack was kind enough to replace those discs. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> very cool that they did that too. So I was very appreciative of it at that price. Oh, Saved I, a lot of money in those days. Oh heck yeah. Yeah. Uh well, yeah. There, there was things things were a lot more challenging than they used to be. Things are so much in so many regards, things are so much easier than they used to be. Um, but yeah, very cool. Um now, so well, so you got so you got popular in Australia and established yourself there. Um at what point did you kind of start hitting the international scene? Well, the important thing is I live in Darwin, which is at the top end of Australia. Okay. So our nearest capital city, in fact, is Jakarta, not Sydney or Melbourne. Okay. And we traveled frequently. It was quite easy to travel between Darwin and Singapore, which is only four hours away versus four and a half for Sydney or Melbourne. And I was invited to do some work in Singapore and for that, I made a number of contacts, and that began, I suppose, my uh, my exposure to to international markets. Uh, John Wiley International, based in Singapore, picked up my Australian book and wanted to publish an international version of that. We did that. That involved uh, doing some work uh, around the region. And in fact, my book was one of my books was first picked up by Pearson Publishing. And in that remarkable skill, just as I have that remarkable skill of being able to pick the absolute top of the market and buy it and go long, not buy it and go short, <laughs> Pearson's offer to modify the book for to encompass all Asian markets came in 1997 and it was released just a few days prior to the collapse of Asian markets, whereupon Pearson left the publishing bills. That was a bit of a flop from Pearson's perspective, but John Wiley stepped into the breach and we published a different version. So that offer from Pearson put me into broader markets. Wow, I was fortunate enough working in Singapore to work with Singaporean Chinese, not with expats. 
And that gave me a different perspective. That took me into China for the first time. When I came back, I employed uh, some casual staff, including um, a, a lady who was completing a degree. Um, when she returned to Beijing, I went back to Beijing. I was invited to speak at the Shanghai Futures Exchange, which I did. Uh, and then in typical Chinese fashion, the gentleman came up to me at the end of it and said, oh, can you possibly speak at the Dalian Futures Exchange? I said, yeah, we can do that. When? Um, tomorrow? Of course, Dalian is 3,000 kilometres away at the other side of China. And I said, well, maybe next week, not tomorrow. <laughs> um, but you look at the expansion of those Asian markets and the China markets in particular, Oh yeah, there is a tremendous thirst, continues to be, a tremendous thirst for knowledge on how to trade, how to manage those markets. And in some of those markets, they are more compatible with technical analysis and charting approaches because of the, let's call it, the disrupted flow of information. Um, information is not as transparent as it is in, say, US markets or many Western markets. Huh. Now, do you see a big difference between uh, like retail traders in the in the Western markets and the Chinese traders, the individual retail traders, uh, as far as like their attitude and their approaches? They're essentially the same. Okay. We're all driven by by greed, uh, and greed is simply greater returns expected every day. That's why we're in the market. <laughs> we're not in the market because we want to be a charity. We're not in the market because we want to feel good about greens or the climate or whatever. We're in the market because we want to generate a return from the movement within the market. Yeah. We're in the market because it is the most effective way to deploy our capital and get a return compared with putting it in the bank or buying a property or something similar. So, again, Walking back a little bit, Alvin Toffler. Remember Alvin Toffler? He was great talking about the way the future was going to develop. Future Shock, I think, was his major book. But his most important book, the book called Power Shift, which wasn't very widely read. Okay. And what he argued in Power Shift, amongst other things, was that the same information could be used by multiple people at the same time, mm -hmm. and they could all benefit. And that's the market. Mm -hmm. The market gives us that same information. What became important, what becomes important, is how you grow your capital. You grow your capital through the price movement. And that's where Warren Buffett and I bid a hasty goodbye to each other. Because yeah. Warren Buffett's concerned about buy quality companies. How do we know it's a quality company? Well, I've still got it after 20 years, so it must be quality. If it failed, well, it obviously wasn't quality. That's a bit of sophistry that Buffett goes on with. But I'm not a shareholder. I don't know anything about the company. I don't pretend that I'm smarter than their executive board team. I don't pretend I know more about accounting than a chief financial officer. That's that's rubbish. I don't know anything about the company whatsoever. I'm not a shareholder. I'm not buying the business. I'm buying the price movement. So my task, your task as a trader, is to understand that price movement, to identify points where there is a high probability of either trend change taking place or of trend continuation taking place after a minor retracement. So we look at S&P at the moment, for instance, are we looking at the confirmation of a long-term downtrend based on the head and shoulder pattern 
Or are we saying those targets have been achieved? Therefore, we're looking for a trend change that's taking place and will go long rather than short. So that's our role. That's our task. And I know you're going to ask me a question about why you think traders fail. Traders fail because they don't understand what they're doing. <laughs> Even though they've bought a stock, they still think that they're a part owner of the company. Well, I got news for you. Your 100 shares don't count for nothing. You don't get a seat on the board, unlike yeah. Warren Buffett. You don't get to change the management. You don't get to see the insides of what's going on. You don't get to play golf with the CEO. So your 100 shares gives you an opportunity to join a price movement and get a return on your capital that is greater than if you deployed it in alternative sources buying a property, putting in the bank, buying bonds or something similar. All right. Well, um, actually, it's funny. I mean, you just hit on something that uh, I've been, I've actually gotten into arguments with, with some uh, trading psychology book writers and, and, and those in the space. And, and, you know, from psychology, you know, of course, we have to understand market psychology. And it's funny, a lot of what you're saying, I totally agree with. But um, just the fact that you said, you know, with, with a lot of traders, they don't know what they're doing. And I, that was uh, one very prominent book author in the trading psychology space. And I got, got, got on the phone the first time we were ever talking and everything. And he's like, yeah, you know, all these traders that are struggling, it's because they have these, you know, deep you know, psychological issues that probably go to their child, you know, go back to their childhood or whatever. And I'm like, no, most, the biggest problem most traders have is they're trying to do a job that they haven't been trained for. They, they don't know what they're doing. Not that they're stupid. They just haven't been properly trained. And that's why it's so rough. And yeah, just learning things like what you're talking about is under, start to understand price movement and learn how to deal with the market, understand your real role in all this. And it's a, it's a skill set that most people can learn. It's not, you know, a natural gift. It's just, okay, are you going to learn what you need to learn? And so that's hilarious. You, you were, uh, the way it came out was a, a little bit harsher than I might've put it, but it's still spot on. So hilarious. Um well, now, as far as uh, one question I did want to ask you, as far as, you know, of course, you know, what necessarily why traders, uh, you, know, lose, you know, lose or fail. But, you know, since this is the Consistency Profit Podcast, I have to ask, as far as traders who are kind of, you know, they're, they're, they're surviving, why, what do you see is probably one of the bigger obstacles to being able to make consistent profits for most traders? The first goes back to my previous answer, and that is we are not, buying the company i'm not buying the family business i'm not buying part of the corner store so push that to one idea uh, push that to one side because that's a major barrier to your understanding the relationship uh with the uh, with 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 the market and the price that you're the, the trading that you're doing mm -hmm. the other and it's slipped my mind for them which is a bit of a problem it will come back the other is to to understand that you don't know what's going to happen. And it comes back to a philosophical standing. We all like to believe that we have some control over the outcome of any event. Mm -hmm. If we're driving a car, it's better than an AI-driven car because we're smarter than any AI and we know that we can avoid that pedestrian. Oops, no, we're quite right on that one. We know that if we pick the numbers in a lottery, that that's better than having numbers picked for us, this illusion of control. <laughs> and we bring those attitudes to the market. So really, 
if we're talking about the underlying elements of success in the market, mm-hmm. it comes back to our thinking about the market. And we very rarely examine this in any detail. We charge off with a whole baggage train of preconceptions and habits and ideas that are unacknowledged. Trading the market is first and foremost about harm minimization. Okay. Let me say that again. It's about harm minimization. Now, you can put that in terms of lacing a stock loss. How many people use a stop loss? Everyone says, oh, yeah, I use a stop loss, except I haven't actually put it into the market and I forget to put it in. When it gets to that price, I know it's going to go up, so I won't put the stop loss there. So very few people, the correct question is, who uses an automatic stop loss? Something that's prepositioned in the order. Very few people doing it. We talk a lot in these trading psychology books about habits. Yeah, quite true. And what are they going to do about it? They're habits because they're habits. They're habits because we can't or won't or don't change them. Let's take the most serious stuff. Not losing a couple of thousand dollars in the market, not losing a hundred thousand dollars in the market. Let's take the first heart attack that you have. And you go to the doctor and he says, oh, well, you've got to do this. You've got to stop drinking grog. You've got to stop eating so much chocolate. You've got to exercise more. You've got to get out of that chair you sit in nine hours a day. Blah, 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 blah. And we do that for about four weeks. And then we stop because those are habits that we have. And eventually, of course, we die. Get run over by a bus, not a heart attack. But nevertheless, you know, that's the ultimate conclusion of life. But the important point is our habits are there for a reason. We can't change them easily, but we can minimise the harm that we do. Now, one of my nasty habits is that I've never met a bar of chocolate that I didn't like. (laughs) If I have, we live in a hot climate, if I have chocolate in the fridge, then it has a limited lifespan. (laughs) The only way I can avoid The only way I can break that habit is not to have chocolate in the fridge. (laughs) To make sure that I'm as far away from chocolate as possible. But I can't change the habit. I can change, I can minimise the harm that it does. Same in the market. We can't change our behaviours. We should have sold at the top, but I didn't because I wanted more. That's a habit. I should have bought here when the market gave me the first entry signal, but I didn't. That's a habit. Okay, recognise what your habits are, then develop strategies to minimise the harm that those habits are doing. That's a much more successful approach than saying, oh, yes, I've got to change this habit. I've had it for all my life, but I'm going to throw it out the window and change it as of tomorrow. Yeah, well, good luck with that. (laughs) True, (laughs) very true. Yeah, and we're all human. So, yeah, we're all susceptible to things, sure. Uh, actually, you know, that was one of my favorite things in uh, Nicholas Darvis's story. When, you know, he, he was traveling Europe and, you know, it, it had, his, had a successful run and came back to the States and because it was, you know, being all proud and everything and, you know, his ego was a little boosted. He set up an office in, in his broker's uh, or set up a desk in his broker's office. And then he's hearing all the all the other brokers talking and all this kind of stuff. And his, his performance just started tanking and he's losing money left and right. <laughs> Packed up and moved into a hotel and said, don't call me. I don't want to even talk to you. Just send me a cable like I've been doing, because <laughs> I know that if I'm hearing all this stuff, I'm going to fall prey to it. And I just I can't do it. 
And so I, yeah. can't, I can't remember which of the market wizards wrote it uh, in Jack Swagger's book, uh, but he said at the time, you put a ticker machine on your desk and you will feed it money. <laughs> we don't have a ticker machine anymore. We've got a computer screen sitting in front of us <laughs> with all that stuff running and we feed it money. Nothing wrong in doing that. Yeah. It's inevitable. It's what we're involved in. But yeah. we need to recognize those those changes and changes. Now the other thing, just can I have a can I have a little pet whinge here? A, a bit of a groan, a bit yeah. of a complaint. Psychology in the market is essential. There are two factors. If I'm looking at a at a, at a stock and a, a chart and whatever, how I am thinking about that chart, how I am reacting to that chart is probably the market psychology writ large. I'm not thinking something different. My reaction to a rising stock where I'm sitting on a large profit is the same as yours and anyone else's. Okay. If I can recognize those reactions, I can trade with them or I can trade against them. Mm -hmm. That's the emotions of the market. That's number one. Number two, these psychological studies that are done with university students, and then we extrapolate from those to say, oh, this is how investors behave. Well, as soon as I read that page, I take the book and I put it to one side, okay. usually for disposal. Why? <laughs> I've been a university student. You may have been a university student. When I was a university student, to use an Australian terms, I was on the bones of my ass. No money. <laughs> so if someone's offering me a free pizza or $10, I'm in for it. No problems at all. So we've got all of these psychological experiments where what's at risk? A cup of coffee? $10? You try making $10,000 at risk or $50,000 at risk or $100,000 at risk. The psychological changes are dramatically different. So the idea that we can extrapolate from some poor poverty-stricken university student who thinks two cups of coffee is Christmas all come at once <laughs> and put that into market behavior is false. Yeah. And if we rely on that idea of psychological analysis of trader behavior and market behavior, then we are misled and we end up making decisions that are not optimal in a trading environment. So yeah, that's the end of that particular engine complaint. It's one of my favorite um, <laughs> complaints about the behavioral analysis of the market. Oh, yeah. No, and, well, you got a valid point though, and it, it, but hilarious at the same time. So yeah, don't don't be talking to college students because everybody, most most college students are yeah, they said they are flat broke, <laughs> and and learning learning to be poor. Um, <laughs> yeah, how hilarious. Um, okay, well, so, all right, okay, so switching gears just a little bit, um, you actually created like the GMMA, and and so I mean, there's a lot of people you know they've written books, they've you know they've done some things in in the trading space. But as far as coming up with, you know, your own like trading tool, how in the heck did you do that? And as far as actually being able to, you know, claim it for your own. How'd that well, the simple answer to that is that it's designed around the limitations of software. So like everybody else, I'm sitting down there and I'm trying to work with moving averages to move the point of the moving average signal crossover as close to the actual pivot point low of a downtrend to an uptrend. Okay. So I want to get in as close to the absolute bottom as possible. And the software I was using at the time would only allow me to plot six moving averages. So okay. I plotted six moving averages. 
And then I plotted another six moving averages. They became long-term and short-term moving averages. Okay. And what I observed was that despite the tremendous differences in length from a three-day moving average, in other words, about half a week, half a trading week, to the 60-day moving average, which, of course, is commonly used in the United States for investment purposes, that the crossover point, the compression point behaviour in those was almost simultaneous. You would expect to see this tremendous divergence, this tremendous separation between those two sets of signals. Okay. So the question becomes, this is repeated behaviour. We see compression in this short-term group, and we see compression in the long-term group occurring within a narrow, an unreasonably narrow window of opportunity. Mm. Why is it happening? First, you observe the behaviour, then you try and explain that particular observation. Mm. Now, my, my explanation may not be accurate, but the way I understand, the way I interpret it, is that the short-term group represents the thinking of, of traders. And when there is compression, there is a point of agreement about price and value. Now, this isn't Walmart. Right. There's not a set price of what's sitting on the stock, on the shelves. As soon as there's an agreement about price and value, some, I hesitate to use the term smart-ass, is going to come along and say, oh, it's worth more than that. I'll buy it at this price because I think it's going to be up here. Or I'll buy it at this price because I think it's going to be down here. Mm -hmm. So, the points of agreement about price and value are fleeting. Mm -hmm. They're not extended. So when you've got this compression that takes place in the short-term group amongst traders, agreement about price and value, it is most often followed by disagreement. That's a useful observation in itself. Mm -hmm. But when you see the fractal repetition, and you can go into all the detail around chaos theory and complexity theory, Fractal repetition and strange attractors become an important part of the background of this analysis. It's not where I started from, but it's what explains what happens. So you look at the long-term group and you've got this compression that takes place almost simultaneously with the short-term group. What's it tell us? It tells us, again, that there is an agreement about price and value. Now, if that occurs at pretty much the same time as the traders are reaching the same agreement, then you've got a powerful force that's saying the value is going to change. The, the price assigned to the value of this stock is going to change and change substantially. Okay. Now, initially, we applied that purely to stock markets, but we found that it also applies to futures markets, to commodity markets, to foreign currency trading, the same relationships. Although we still talk traders and investors just for convenience, it's about capturing the point and where fractal repetition begins to replicate. And that's that's where you're jumping in. It's the psychology of the market. So think about it. You and I are traders. We can be represented by the short-term group. What are we after? I'm not greedy. I want anywhere between 30 and 50 to 60% from the trade. That's it. Anything less than 10%, it's a mistake. I don't want to really be involved in it. So a couple of trades I've taken in the last couple of days, returns have been 25 to 45%. And they've been over a 10-day period or less. That's easy. You and I can make that decision. And if it works out, we can choose to tell our partner. And if it doesn't work out, she never needs to know about it. <laughs> but the investor is a different environment. Right. 
I've got a Monday morning meeting and I've got to convince my panel that it's worth putting our funds into this particular stock. And that takes time. There is a lag in that process. You and I saw the opportunity last week. Mm. This week, I'm taking it to my fund manager board and they won't make a decision for another 10 or 12 days. That's interesting in itself. But what's more important is although the fund managers advertise themselves uh, as having points of difference, the reality is that those points of difference are so small that in effect, they all think in much the same way, reach much the same conclusion at much the same time. And we see that reflected in the long-term group of moving averages where they slowly compress, but then begin to slowly or quickly expand. Mm -hmm. Expansion shows disagreement about price and value. Compression shows agreement about price and value. So when both groups, short-term traders and investors, reach the same conclusions about price and value, then you have the beginnings of a powerful move taking place. That's what I want to identify. So I've done chart analysis. That's my starting point. I've used really complex tools. I've drawn a trend line and prices moved above the trend line. I've applied a self-adjusting volatility measure to determine whether the breakout that's taken place is a genuine breakout compared to previous volatility or whether it's just an aberration. But then I want to understand whether the market is thinking the same way as I am. And that's when I apply GMMA analysis to confirm that basic chart analysis. And if it all ticks up, that's where I buy. And there's a high probability, an increased probability, that that breakout will be genuine. Not all the time, but consistently enough to provide me with a comfortable living. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah, and excellent insights that are that good reminder for everybody. Cause yeah, as far as just keeping in mind the difference between price and value. Um, yeah, that's 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 excellent. Now, as far as uh, what you're doing now, um, you, uh, I mean, you, you know, you still you still you're speaking, you're still writing stuff, right? Um, oh yes. Um, what's one of the main things though? Like if uh, if one of our listeners they want to you know find out more about or you know maybe they want to follow you or learn more. Do you have a uh, you know, particular place it's good for people to connect with you and, and what do you have going on uh, right now that would be useful for the, uh, you know, for the individual retail trader? There's a whole series of questions there. So let's see if I can remember them all and answer them in detail. First of all, we produce a weekly newsletter. Okay. In the weekly newsletter, it's not about stock tips. It's about trading methods and techniques that are suitable in the current market conditions. So what's the biggest challenge we have at the moment? What keeps us awake at night besides losing positions? Artificial intelligence. Is artificial intelligence going to make you and me irrelevant? Does artificial intelligence spell the end of independent retail trading? Or does it give us a whole range of opportunities? Mm -hmm. Now, we think, and I only trade from the long side because I'm always optimistic, I think it gives us a whole range of new opportunities. It doesn't invalidate the tools we're using, but it may need to change the way that we apply them or the weightings that we apply to them. So in other words, you know, we say GMA is most important, followed by a trend line break, followed by a countback line, 
um, confirmation, etc. So we have weightings in the indicators that we use. Mm-hmm. We may need to change those. We may need to introduce some new material. And what we're finding, AI and social media, that's its, that's its bastard's child, as it were, mm-hmm. is giving a whole range of recommendations to the uninformed, the ill-informed, the ignorant, all of whom have money, and they put it into the market. So how is that changing the behaviour of the market? It's being driven by AI, but it doesn't mean it's smart. <laughs> the followers don't have AI in their favour. Right. So what changes in behaviour are taking place? So one of the things that we've been investigating, in our newsletter, just an example of the sort of work that we do, is some old work that was done at the turn of the century by two gentlemen called Woods and Arp around float analysis. Okay. Now, the idea behind that is that we know that, let's say there's a million shares on issue, but only 500,000 of those are available for trading. The rest are tied up in fund management, in escrow or, or, escrow or whatever. Mm. So although there's a, th- a million shares on issue, only 500,000 is available for trading. And there are some services in the US in particular that help you identify what they think that free float is. Mm-hmm. Not a big favour of that. I like to work with the basic information of the chart. So what we've done, and we have it in our own software uh, that we use, we're do, working with Metastock to have these in Metastock coming in for the next upgrade. Let's take a chart. Okay, it's gone up, it's gone down, it's gone up, it's gone down. Clear trend behaviours. Let's plot the cumulative volume between that low, that trend low and that trend high. Let's say it's 500,000, just to use the build on the example I gave before. Okay, let's project that 500,000 volume forward. Does it match another trend changing point? It's projected backwards. How reliable is that figure in matching changes in the trend. And what we find with some stocks is that it is exceptionally reliable. It is exceptionally compatible. We might need to optimise it a bit, uh, 550,000, for instance, but we can overlay this on a chart and we can identify that this price move has consumed most of the available free float. And that's inferred from historical trend movements. Right. And that's an important point. Because right. if I've got a signal, a breakout above a trend line, confirmed by a volatility measure, and we use either Traders ATR, which is our own, our own adaptation of the way that Wells Wider's ATR is displayed, or whether we're using a countback line. So we've got a variety of confirmation signals that the breakout is developing. And 98% of the free float has changed hands. That becomes an additional confirming factor that says there is now a higher probability that this trend change is going to develop. Or we get a mid-trend entry. Temporary price weakness comes back to the uptrend line. Do we buy or not? Let's look at the volume turnover. Oh, only a quarter of the free flows has changed hands. Therefore, there's a higher probability this uptrend will continue. There'll be a rebound and a trend continuation. So it's an added tool. What we're finding is, in the last 10 or 15 years, it was largely 
archaic. It was an interesting anachronism. Didn't really have much significance in the market. But with the increased impact of AI, we're finding that float volume analysis, inferred float volume analysis, is giving us an additional edge in identifying those stocks that are likely to genuinely move in a breakout, they confirm the breakout, or help us to identify an entry opportunity on temporary trend weakness. Because hmm. you know that situation, you, know, you buy, the price comes down, it hits the trend line, you buy, and then it continues to keep on falling down. And that's been happening in increasing levels. What's it driven by? It's driven by the surges of uninformed buying and selling that comes into the market that are driven by social media. And social media itself is more being driven by AI. Yeah. I think there's probably a third question there that you asked that I haven't answered. Um, if you can remember it, I'll answer it, but I can't, so I won't. <laughs> no, no, and you did really well with that. Mostly, you know, just what you've got going on now. And, and yeah, as far as, like we talked about, you know, want to circle back to your uh, uh, your newsletter. because uh, and, and actually, I do encourage everybody that's listening, if you do like staying on top of, you know, develop, current developing trends and what might be on the horizon, and how to uh, take a look at it, you know, or, you know, utilize it in your trading. Uh, it sounds like this uh, newsletter would definitely be of interest to you. Uh, so I uh, definitely want to. Yeah, let, let, let me say uh, two things. I remember the third bit I was going to say. Okay. Um, the newsletter examples, they're not theoretical. Mm-hmm. All right. So we apply them to contemporary current markets. We don't, have, we don't identify the stock we're using as the example because they're not licensed investment advisors. And we track that performance over the next three or four or six or seven weeks, depending on how the trade develops. If the trade fails, we analyse why it failed, what changes we need to make in the methodology to make it work. If it's successful, we need to verify it across multiple trades and so on. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, not, it's not theoretical stuff. It's not based on 162 years of analysis of the Dow. No, it's based on stock ABC at the entry price based on Monday this week, and we track it over the next four weeks to see how the technique has applied and whether it's valid. So although it won't give you which stocks to trade, it says, here's the situation. And we provide all the search uh, criteria that we use, all the analysis techniques that we use, and say, okay, now you go out, you apply this Metastock coding to your own searches, and when you get something that looks like what we're talking about, then maybe you can apply the same techniques that we're doing. Yeah. But the bit that I did forget to mention okay. is that we finally achieved international social media notoriety. Really? We've got a scam in operation. <laughs> so be aware. The only place where you can get genuine material from Guppy Traders is from our website, Guppy Traders. Dot com. Okay. <laughs> Anything else that's out there on social media that claims to have me giving you stock tips, et cetera, et cetera, is a scam. Okay. <laughs> now, that was an honor to be the subject of a social media scam. It's not something we want people falling for. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> funny. I mean, not, not cool, but still funny. Yes. <laughs> In that point where people are wanting to copy it. Yeah. Very cool. Well, Daryl, this, this has really been excellent. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. And uh, yeah, you've got some really cool perspectives on things. Um, so yeah, thank you for sharing your insights and, and your, your outlook on, on different aspects of things. And uh, for everybody- Just remember, yeah. uncommon results do not come 
from common thinking. True. True. Good advice. Well, and common actions too. Likes of the uninformed. <laughs> so yeah, very cool. Well, any other final words of wisdom for our, for our listeners today? Aside from swing by and get your newsletter, I think I'd repeat what I said earlier, Brian. Yeah. There are two features. One, trading is about harm minimization, and the use of a stop loss is part of that process. The second is you need to decide whether you are with Nostradamus or whether you are with the French philosopher, Albert Camus. Okay. And Nostradamus says, of course, I can predict the future. And there are a whole range of approaches to trading that say that this is the case. Albert Camus, of course, is one of the French existentialists who came out in the prominence in the 1950s and 60s. And he says, I have no idea what's going to happen. The best that I can do is manage my reaction to the future as it develops. And that's where I sit. Yeah. And that's where I think all traders should be sitting. Yeah, good wisdom. Indeed. Indeed. Well, again, Daryl, thanks, thanks for thanks for doing this. Everybody that's listening, uh, applaud you for being here and taking the time to, you know, learn and develop yourself as a trader and broaden your knowledge base. Uh, so, uh, you know, if you enjoyed the uh, podcast, definitely subscribe and uh, share it with your friends. And Daryl, again, thanks for being here today, man. No problems. Thank you very much. And we'll go ahead and wrap things up. Uh, and uh, yes, everybody, make sure you go ahead and subscribe to the Consistent Profits Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode. Cheers. Thank you for joining us today on the Consistent Profits Podcast, brought to you by Inside Out Trading. Make sure to swing by Inside Out Trading and pick up your copy of The Proven Formula for Consistent Monthly Profits. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe on your favorite channel, and we'll see you on the next episode. Cheers.